environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. So today's guest is Mark DePaolo, and he is a native of Staten Island, New York. He earned his PhD in English from Drew University. He has written three nonfiction books, the most recent of which we will be discussing today, and that is Fire and Snow, Climate Fiction from the Inklings to Game of Thrones, which was published in 2018. His autobiographical novel, Fake Italian, will be published in May by Bordighera Press. He has appeared in the documentary Robert Kirkman's Secret History of Comics, and he is Associate Professor of English at Southwestern Oklahoma State University. Welcome, Mark, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Glad to have you. Geeky stuff is always welcome here. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so given the uh, focus, which we may or may not call geeky, I would not, um, given the focus of Mark's <laughs> most recent book, which covers texts including the Narnia stories, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, The Handmaid's Tale and Doctor Who, I thought we could look at the roots of some relevant genre words for our root words today. And those words being uh, fantasy and science fiction. Science comes from the Latin meaning to know. And of course, the word far predates the modern sense of science with its exacting standards of objectivity and replicability. Fantasy comes from the Greek phinine, meaning to show. And this is the same root as the words epiphany and phenomenon, which also both have to do with a certain kind of making manifest. A fantasy is then literally a making visible, which is why it's often associated with delusion, hallucinations, visions, dreams or wishful thinking. The word fiction comes from the Latin finger, meaning to fashion or form, which is also the root of the words fein, figment and, somewhat unexpectedly, the word dough. This is perhaps less surprising when we consider that dough does also require fashioning or forming, but I for one had not thought about linking the shaping of fiction to the kneading of dough before. But I digress. Um, Let's get back to the cases of fantasy and science fiction as they relate to questions of the environment. What does it mean to know, to show or to shape in the context of the Anthropocene? How might these deeper meanings of these genre words change how we think about the roles of science, fiction and fantasy today? And answering these questions would, of course, take far longer than I have in this short segment. And so I'll leave it to our listeners to ponder at a bit more length. Um, But Mark, can I begin by asking you to reflect a little bit on the genres that your book covers and why you think that they are important with regards to climate change and questions of the environment? Is there a distinct difference between fantasy and sci-fi in this regard? One of the key words that comes up a lot in anything that has anything to do with study of the Inklings is the use of the word allegory, because J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, allergic to the term, and because he prided himself on creating fake worlds to develop a new language and play with his role as a linguistics professor, he hated when anyone said seemed to read Lord of the Rings as a straight rip-from-the-news headline retelling of World War II with elves and orcs and other creatures like that. And he disliked any time it seemed like C.S. Lewis was 
preaching Christianity very overtly and building into the Narnia stories a proselytization and expecting people to read it in a specific way and being heavy-handed. But both of them uh, wrote both science fiction and fantasy, and they are sort of allegories because they're creating fake worlds with their own internal logic, cultures, languages, to comment on real-world problems and actually to deal with their own trauma as World War I veterans, people who lost their parents at an impressionable age. And they're telling very personal stories. The question is, what do we, as receivers of the stories, do with them? Do we see them as escapists from our world? Uh, when I first loved fantasy as a child, I did it specifically because it was more exciting than Staten Island working-class suburban existence, you know, the equivalent of getting out of Privet Drive and going to Hogwarts uh, by reading. Um, and I wanted to get away from the real world, but I discovered all the texts from this book uh, trying to make the similar escape from a boring commute and found myself thrown directly into all the major real-world concerns of our time, uh, fascism, pollution, um, ecofeminism. So uh, I think what's interesting about fantasy and science fiction is if you ask the average person, what is it? They'll say escapist stories for children. And I would say some of the most subversive and potentially illuminating um, and paradigm shifting narratives out there. If you read the original texts and don't watch the action movie franchise adaptations. Have you, can you talk maybe a little bit about, is there a, has there been a shift? So, you know, talking about something, someone like, um, Tolkien, who is is in you know you, as you said many ways, uh, maybe rejecting the idea of it being an allegory. Um, to I think you know perhaps more contemporary fantasy and sci-fi authors who are, um, you know someone like um, Kim Stanley Robinson, right? Where it's very clearly, um, you know, and intentionally, uh, you know, driving us to think about these uh, environmental concerns or political concerns. Um, so, you know, do do you talk about that in the book at all, or can you maybe do you talk a little bit about that that historical shift? Um, I do in, in the authors. The, the, there's always the question of intention. You know, I uh, I've been accused of elevating um, paper thin texts with my own literacy. You know, because I interpret politics and superhero stories, and usually just a few use the films as an example, is five minutes of political commentary and a 70-minute fight scene. You know, So how much of that am I bringing to the text? Um, but you know, so to validate my work, I looked at interviews with the authors. And Octavia Butler, when she wrote Parable of the Sower and Parable of Talents, was trying to extrapolate from her present a likely future based on the increasing conservatism of American politics and increasing pollution and climate change and race relations. And she wrote uh, uh, in Parable of the Talents, uh, a future America that is very much the last four years under the Trump administration, alarmingly accurate. Um, Then you have uh, somebody like um, Philip Pullman in his Dark Materials. He has uh, a rift in the sky created by essentially Satan uh, causing the planet to warm and the ice caps to melt and this heroic bear, Yorick Bernison, losing is uh, native lands. And he said that was an accidental parallel to real world events, which that seems surprisingly accidental, but uh, <laughs> it works. And then you have um, Game of Thrones author um, George R.R. R. Martin, who said he had 
basically a very cold winter in mind uh, in college that he lived through uh, when he created the North and um, the Night Watch. And um, the disruption to the weather in um, Westeros had nothing to do initially with climate change. But certain storylines he built in, like people not believing in the ice zombie apocalypse um, and being much more interested in building a wall to keep out uh, immigrants and uh, native peoples, uh, that was all accidental. But over time, uh, those storylines have become so politically relevant that he's embraced fan readings of them and said, gee, you know, that wasn't intentional, but hey, if this is the best way my book is relevant, and is the most positive potential political influence, you know, that plus he, he called, um, Donald Trump, um, Joffrey Baratheon grown up, you know, only possibly less mature. Um, so those, those sorts of parallels he embraced, but he, he did plan any of it when he wrote the story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it seems to me that, uh, you know, author intention is is not really the most interesting thing the most interesting thing is is the way that the texts are able to uh speak to us in our current context whether that was um intentional or not um so you do uh focus a little bit in the book on on this notion of a of a christian environmentalist ethic in in Tolkien and and Lewis. Um so I wonder if I can get you to talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what is the role of of religion in general or christianity specifically um in these kinds of texts and that and how that relates to environmentalisms. Okay, I think what has bothered me about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien is there's very little forum to have an intelligent conversation about their work because I feel like I'm either stuck talking to comic book nerd fans who are very invested in the author intention. They'll say something like Tolkien said he didn't like allegory. So you're not allowed to do an English major reading of his books, which, you know, so that means I have to read a dwarf as a dwarf and it doesn't symbolize anything, which is preposterous. Um, or, you know, this idea that, um, you know, they're, they're old-fashioned, dead white male works that aren't relevant to the modern context, so they're not worth reading intelligently, which is something I bump into in the Academy. So I'm not really sure to that extent who this book is for, but I guess it's for me. And what I see as important to them is, even though there were hippies who really loved the anti-war elements of Lord of the Rings and the environmentalist elements through the Ents and uh, their war against Saruman. The, um, they've become, especially since the war on terror, co-opted by the far right wing in the United States. Uh, the movie adaptations of Lord of the Rings and um, Narnia were voted some of the best conservative films by the National Review. And when I read the original books, which I was told was safe reading for a conservative, a good young Republican by my Catholic priest when I was growing up, I saw a very different kind of Christianity. I saw Dorothy Day, economic, um, sort of socialist leaning or anarcho-socialist economic and political thinking. I saw St. Francis of Assisi style Christianity and far less of these uh, sort of pseudo-fascist fundamentalist Christianity that's dominated American politics through dominionist type figures like Ted Cruz. And so I'm partly reclaiming 
their works from the National Review and talking about that there's many kinds of Christianity, not just the most toxic kind that's very pro-pollution and very beholden to fossil fuel interests in a there will be blood kind of way. So uh, to, to, and, you know, one could argue I'm rehabilitating something that shouldn't be, but uh, it is nice to be able to have a ethical worldview that has not been totally prepackaged by these forces. Can you just um, clarify what you mean by uh, like a Francis of Assisi mode of Christianity, just in case for any listeners that, like myself, oh. might not be as familiar with the different uh, sects of Christianity? I don't know if sects is even the right word, but <laughs> that's true. Uh, I I have a I come from an Italian Catholic immigrant American immigrant uh, form of Christianity and. If you drive around Staten Island, you see statues of a, a man in monk's robes preaching to birds on his shoulders, and he's a very cute. And he's very—he believes in the living world, and he—he he, he collapses the difference between um, interest in Jesus and and the Earth Goddess Gaia in kind of unusual ways. Uh, even though he was claimed by the Catholic Church, which is a pretty hierarchical organization, he's uh, big into poverty and fasting, and he was staunchly anti-capitalist in medieval and Renaissance Italy. So um, he he's not uh, by any stretch uh, establishment, other than, of course, being male and Catholic, which is extremely establishment in many ways. So, so it's, I'm, I'm now, I'm threading a needle here <laughs> when I, t- when I uh, am pinning my hopes on a figure like him, but I'm also partly speaking to academic audiences and partly speaking to religious um, fans of Tolkien and Lewis, who I think are a guaranteed subset of the readership of the book. So I'm curious if you could um, maybe talk a little bit more about how you see, um, you know, either Tolkien or Lewis, um, you know, in some ways doing this in their works. Let's see. So Tolkien is interesting because uh, he uh, he didn't ever really knew his father growing up, and his um, mother was a devout Catholic, and she uh, she loved language, and uh, but she was also very sickly, and she was disowned by her family for being Catholic, and uh, she died young. And even though in his early years he lived in a rural area in England, he got uh, moved to an industrial. Uh, wing and he associated um, industry and pollution with the death of his mother, and it was very deeply traumatizing to him. And anytime he saw a tree cut down, he allegorically felt that his mother had been killed again. So he has this dryad view of trees as his maternal view. And when he fell in love with his wife, it was watching her dance in a forest. And that's why uh, one of the stereotypical images we have of him, if we were to meme Tolkien, would be Liv Tyler as an elf in the woods. There's something very personal where that came from in his life. Um, So he's writing about the need to love trees and not crunch them up uh, for our industrial society. And he linked any attacks on them with forms of fascism uh, and even though there are writers who have come after him who have taken his imagery, some of his plot points that were not necessarily uh, Roman Catholic in the way he was, I've noticed that uh, the imagery of fascists cutting down trees has shown up in a lot of texts since Lord of the Rings, and even in those that 
they may that imagery is used in the books, but maybe not necessarily in the film adaptations. But um, the Hunger Games, you have Katniss Everdeen in the forest fighting a fascist government. Um, you have a lot of woods imagery in uh, Game of Thrones, and one of the things the uh, Lannisters do when they're at their most evil is burn crops and burn trees. Um, so I, I found that a surprising number of genre texts are about these sort of militaristic cultures destroying natural resources wantonly and these pseudo Native American or elfin people protecting the woods from destruction. And uh, that's all a manifestation of quirks of Tolkien's childhood, the loss of his mother and his um, trauma of having to move from a rural area to an industrial one. Mm hmm. I mean, when you're talking about these kind of, uh, well, reverence for and wanting to protect trees, um, it sounds to me, or I associate it more with, for instance, paganism um, or perhaps Eastern religions than Christianity, which um, tend to be a, mo a lot more um, connected to aspects of the non-human world. And yeah, I wonder whether... Um, have you in this book or elsewhere thought about um, similarities and differences between Christianity and other uh, religions? And are there any examples um, in your book or elsewhere of, of uh, sci-fi or fantasy writers that are more engaged with a different religious tradition? I think I got bogged down in a very specific strain that starts with uh, Tolkien and Lewis in part because I, I'm interested in how Hollywood is turning some of these genre texts into uh, science fiction franchises and fantasy franchises. And uh, Hollywood is a pretty old fashioned organization. So they're going to go for your white male uh, genre authors, at least first. So I was listening to the audiobooks of everything that HBO had been making recently and uh, just to kill time on a drive and was surprised by the connective tissue that linked them all back to the Narnia books and Lord of the Rings. But at a certain point, even I got impatient with the boy um, hero who's messianic and he's going to out fascist the fascists by blowing up the bad guys before they cut the trees down. So I, I looked into um, Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood specifically because they seemed the natural next people to read. And this was before their works uh, started to get their own TV shows. So I, uh, I read Handmaid's Tale before it was cool uh, to read it. Uh, you know, and uh, again, I saw a, a number of callbacks to these male writers, though the, the books were clearly more um, reticent about messianic imagery, about uh, military force being used to push back against military force. Uh, as plotless as Tolkien can be, uh, Atwood really focuses on character and psychology, you know. So I saw a difference right away, and actually it opened me up into rethinking my entire field of study. I'm now much more interested in world literature and um, multi-ethnic American literature than ever before, uh, starting out with Tolkien and moving through Octavia Butler into a whole new field. Well, which is to say, I, I know I should have written about it, but it's a potential next work, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm looking into it as a possible follow-up, uh, feminist utopias, um, especially, uh, you know, in the early 1900s or late 1800s. But uh, I'm, I am seeing that that is a field that is being mined as we speak pretty 
effectively. So if I can't bring something new to the table, I'll just enjoy the other books. Uh, but uh, I, it, to me, the, the feminist utopias are a, a very good uh, way to go, especially since it's about what we can do next that's positive. Whereas these texts tend to be very much pushing back against uh, fascism with feminist environmentalist ethics, either filtered through a bizarre form of Christianity or through agnosticism or atheism. Whereas these texts are about changing the narrative, changing government, changing society to be more ecologically sound, which I'm ready for. I want to see some plans. Mm-hmm. But you, so uh, Octavia Butler the, with the parable text—that's it's really the opposite of conservatism, isn't it? Because it's you know she's pushing, or at least the the religion in the text is pushing to to leave Earth and uh, seed other planets. Um, and so I remember when I was reading those texts, like it was kind of this this strange thing where you know she's obviously satirizing america very heavily and actually i read them very recently and you you mentioned earlier um kind of how prescient they were right down to donald trump's slogan um that really kind of felt like it uh hit me quite hard reading that in in um those books but um yeah kind of seeing this satire of of the of this really degraded America, but then also this kind of push of, okay, well, we, we need to go to other planets anyway. And that, that seems aligned now with, you know, that whole kind of Elon Musk uh, faction, which are also not really people that I want to align myself and, uh, and align myself with. So, yeah, I wonder how, where do you stand on, on that kind of thing? This, more kind of pushing forwards to a different world. A lot of these texts very staunchly refuse to do that because uh, they see our earth as enemy occupied territory that needs to be reclaimed. And I think what Octavia Butler is doing is uh, she's acknowledging the strength of the adversaries. You have these roving Mad Max style gangs that burn down her, um, you know, gated community just to start the voyage. And she founds a, sort of egalitarian, multi-ethnic uh, community based on a new religion, and that is attacked by proxies of a right-wing president, and they're sold into slavery. So I could see where space seems like the next viable option, you know, and on other, other planets, there are no Republicans yet, you know. Um, so I could see where it would come from uh, when it comes to Octavia Butler, and I, I would like to join her most of the time. Um but, uh, you know, uh, when someone like Musk is leading the charge, there's very little uh, hope that whatever society he would found on a new planet wouldn't just be another male-dominated capitalist society. Oh, that's C.S. Lewis. That's the first book in the Space Trilogy. The first people who uh, go to another planet are colonialists and businessmen who want to exploit the natives on the new planet. And uh, mm-hmm. a character that he based partly on himself and partly on Tolkien is fighting against uh, the exploiters, and it actually is the template for several episodes of John Pertwee's Doctor Who, where he fights the Master uh, over uh, colonizing other planets and recreating the British Empire in space. So I want to jump back uh, to something that you said uh, a little bit earlier when you were talking about, um, you know, the... 
kind of fan reception or, you know, the, the kind of um, people who love these books have a very kind of singular focus on what they are, what they should be, uh, which is, you know, I think is, is largely a problem in, you know, quote unquote, nerd culture in general, that people get very, very protective of these stories, these characters, these things like that. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of the whole, uh, you know, conversation around, you know, um, stop making everything political, um, even though politics is, is everything. I mean, you know, everything yes. is, is, has, has, is part of this system. You can't remove it from there. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just kind of curious how you see all of this kind of fitting. Maybe, I guess maybe the question um, I've been, I'm, I'm kind of dancing around in my head and haven't quite been able to put into words is how do you see these ideas maybe fitting into um, that idea of nerd culture in general, more broadly um, that, that do you find, it becoming more politicized, um, people being more inter- open to those things, or do you find it actually shutting down even more um, and being more reluctant to not accept them, not not look at these various interpretations? I find that I'm perfectly capable of being eloquent on the page, especially if I have the opportunity to do 12 drafts of, <laughs> of a manuscript. Um, but at the moment I become engaged with someone who's very entrenched online, my IQ drops and my Italian temper flares and I do a terrible job of engaging with them. Um, but I, I do think that my, my best-selling academic writing is geared towards, you know, genre popular culture critiques and showing how superhero stories related to the war on terror and how these, um, these uh, environmental readings are possible with uh, text that we think we already know. And those books sell surprisingly well. And academic terminology seems to have bled out into the internet in strange ways. Um, so, um, and, and you'll see fans themselves bounce these readers off of the authors at conventions. So there's, so there's gotta be some recip- um, receptivity to it. The, on the other hand, you know, we have people who did not grow up with the humanities at all uh, giving um, death threats to feminists who pointed out that Tomb Raider has unusually large breasts during the Gamergate controversy. So with absolutely no interest in thinking critically about these texts. So um, I think the, the extremes are there, uh, but I think I've found a place where I'm comfortable offering these readings. And I think one of the things that helps me is I'm looking at the original books and a lot of people over rely on the adaptations when they have these conversations. I I think the most successful environmental activists who appropriate these texts are the ones that do memes or comedy videos like the, the Dakota access pipeline activists use Tolkien imagery and YouTube videos or memes. Um, I saw a, a meme instantly made, yesterday that used Lord of the Rings to comment on the Georgia Senate races, where um, uh, the face of uh, the map of Georgia is placed on the witch king and says, you know, no man can flip me. And Stacey Abrams' face is placed on Eowyn and she says, I am no man, you know, so that an instant Tolkien meme applied to current events that can come out much more quickly than I can write a 600 page book. So it's all out there, and uh, this is just my putting my toe in the discussion. Mm. I wonder, with what you're saying there about kind of the the original text being more environmental than the adaptations, um, whether that is uh, likely a symptom of 
you know, Hollywood and these big budget productions obviously being kind of much more entrenched and and beholden to capitalist corporations um, and all that stuff. But but perhaps there is just a bit of a lag. Um, I'm thinking of the new adaptation of His Dark Materials um, by uh, the BBC and HBO, which it's not like fully environmental, but there, there it does make a bit more of... Um, the the arctic melting the home of the uh giant bears melting um so i wonder whether kind of as the situation worsens um and as these kind of environmental ideas seem become more mainstream that we might see actually um adaptations kind of get foregrounding the environmental message that you're that you're seeing in the text as well um, and just to go back as well to what you what you said at the beginning of that response, and you said kind of in your book you're very eloquent, and then you get into a discussion online, and and your IQ drops, which I'm sure is not the case. But I think what you're getting at there is that how difficult it is to talk to people who don't already share your views, right? This is this is like one of the central problems of. Uh, politics and the environment today that it's that it is almost impossible to um to have those kind of conversations with any success um and I was reminded of um George Marshall's book uh don't even think about it why our brains are wired to ignore climate change and he's talking about the the kind of all the psychological mechanisms that get in the way of uh, meaningful climate action. Um, And one of the things that he's talking about in that book is really the importance of storytelling and narrative and that really being one of the only ways to get through to people. Um, And he, and he also um, is talking about the importance of um, religion in that, you know, so many of the world's, uh, population are religious and therefore we do kind of really need those people on side as well um and so i wonder whether perhaps do do you see these kind of um religious fantasies as being able perhaps to get through to um religious people in a way that this, these kind of head banging internet conversations uh we have aren't able to I just know that that these stories changed my heart and my politics. I, you know, I grew up with a, a father who grew up in a crime-infested neighborhood in uh, in the Bronx and became quite reactionary because of his childhood. So when he would show me the original Star Trek, he would say, "Enjoy this for Captain Kirk's military tactics." But the moment he starts talking about making peace with the Klingon slash communists, tune him out or fast forward the scene. You know. So uh, he he made me aware of ideology and he warned me against it. You know, he'd sigh watching Star Wars and say, boy, I'm pretty sure the rebels are liberals, you know. Um, and because he warned me about it, I, uh, I watched more carefully and I wound up, because of my affection for Kirk and Luke Skywalker, um, drifting more towards their politics than my father's, you know. Uh, and John Pertwee is a doctor who is uh, one of the most socialist and environmentalist. And so uh, I was initially very resistant to it because there are other doctors that are more militaristic. But he's just so charming that he worked his magic on me and I became more anti-colonial. Um, 
so it worked for me, but when I write these texts and I'm writing functionally about my own transformation politically, um, I will tell my wife, this is the research I'm doing. And then she will watch Hunger Games with me or Game of Thrones. And she will say, well, maybe the books changed you or these older 1970s edgy films changed you. But these modern adaptations are just about naked women and explosions. And those are not going to change modern people the way you were changed by edgy 60s material. And uh, the extent to which I think she's right meant that I spent a lot of time on that very issue at the beginning of this book before I even began the conversation, you know, because I have to acknowledge it, but I still think it's possible that uh, other people could be changed the way I was. Yeah. Uh, something you were, uh, while you were talking there, just reminded me too of um, there's, there's also an irony that's happening, you know, over the past, I, I, I'm sure it probably goes back even farther, but um, within the past couple of years of a lot of right wing um pundits uh you know whether political or just just media you know people utilizing and almost in, in many ways misinterpreting right that they're using like the villains as <laughs> their stand-in for what they're doing so there I, I can't think of the specific example off my head but i feel like there was an example where um you know like like president trump was ma- made some kind of um meme or reference to like the death star and them being this, you know, positive force. And it was just like, I mean, did you watch the movie? Right. And so I think there's an irony, um, in thinking about, you know, in thinking about interpretation and thinking about how these, um, you know, popular texts are getting utilized. Um, just a, a random thought, you know, that's kind of popping into my head about, you know, as, as people are utilizing these texts to think about their own politics, their own environmentalism, um, you know, I think that's why it's you know maybe important to have you know works like yours or the works like other scholars are doing to kind of help them, um, you know, find find um, positive ways into them in in some ways. I think propagandists are simultaneously becoming less honest than ever and more honest than ever. Because uh, mm. when uh, I think at a key moment when I was entering my early twenties, we'd have a figure like Dan Quayle using pop culture criticism to say, you know. The Republicans uh, just want people to work hard. They're not racist. Uh, we, ju- we just believe in protecting the family. And that's pretty soft, um, right-wing p- sounding, right-wing propaganda. Whereas um, now it's just, no, yeah, we're, we're racist and we're pretty pumped and we love the Confederacy, which I find, um, which never would have spoken to me, by the way. Uh, uh, it was put in a candy coating uh, and when I was growing up. So what I was used to was people saying, no, Captain America, there's no way he's a a Democrat. There's no way Superman's a Democrat. They've got to be Republicans because they're patriots. That's what I was used to. So I would would think, well, Luke Skywalker must be Republican. But now they're they're more honest and like, yeah, we're their empire. We're Darth Vader and we love it and we're the good guys. And it's uh, honest. It's also a little mind boggling and hard to talk to. It's um, yeah. It, well, on the other hand, one of the most effective pieces of right-wing propaganda is Wall Street, um, written by a left-winger against capitalism. But after that movie came out, everybody who saw it became a business major. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it, the narratives are wild the way in which the author loses control of them. And yeah. it makes me a little scared to present satire because I imagine it being willfully co-opted by the very people I'm critiquing. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, uh, it is time to end on a roll. So I've got a 12-sided die here. I'm going to give it a toss, and whatever number question comes up, that's what we're going to ask you. So today we have number six. Uh, so what's an additional research interest that you have beyond uh, what you've talked about today? Well, the uh, when you talked about some of the frustration of talking with uh, fans and and I've had uh, some frustrations talking with academics about some of these topics. I decided, instead of hiding my autobiography behind discussions of texts that were meaningful to me, that I would just write my autobiography. So I uh, wrote Fake Italian about growing up in Staten Island in the 80s uh, during particularly racially tense time in New York and efforts to recruit me into right-wing Catholicism and right-wing politics and uh, how I escaped that. And I tell it as a sort of a novel it's a, uh, I'm kind of coy about how much of it is a novel and how much of it is autobiography. And there's a lot of humor and, uh, that's coming out in May and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Um, and how can people find out more about you? Do you have any social media or website or anything like that that you'd like to share? I, uh, I do have a Wix website. So if you look up Mark DiPaolo, author Wix, it'll, it'll pop up and I'm, um, I've been told that if I want my autobiography to sell well, that I should create a Twitter account and maybe tag Mark Ruffalo and say, hey, look, uh, maybe you should adapt this. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I'm a little scared, but I think that will be coming pretty soon. So maybe keep an eye out. Well, if you, if you open it before we air this episode, let us know and we'll put it in the show notes and then people can Sounds find good. you there. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again for uh, for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Always, never enough time in in the episode for for everything we could get get into. But uh, thank you again. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for everything. Yep. And thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of uh, Asley's EcoCast. If you have an idea for an episode, you can get a hold of us uh, through email. We're uh, Asley dot ecocast at gmail .com. You can also find us on Twitter at Asley underscore EcoCast. And if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we are, of course, always open to your feedback. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks to all our listeners. Until next time. Bye. Bye.